Welcome. My name is uh, Greg Hancock, and along with my friend Dr. Patrick Curran, we make up Quantity. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about things that surprised us about being a professor, things that no one told us. And uh, it's also possible that you will hear a story about my son, my, my biological son, my favorite, totally biological son, that is based on a, a complete misunderstanding. Yeah, a misunderstanding in kindergarten and taken out of context. Yeah, okay. They, I mean, we also talk about learning to fly, parenting, Richard Russo, Bayesian personality, Crazens, just noticeable differences, crayon giraffes, academic mulligans, final, final, final drafts, dead birds, Britney Spears, volitional reinvention, unconditional attaboys, and the academic Pez dispenser. Where were you? We hope you enjoyed today's episode. <sighs> Good morning, my friend. How are you doing? I am hanging in there. I'm only yeah. on my fifth coffee, so okay. You know, I got a bit of ways to go still. <laughs> so I have a uh, the eight gallon diet coke in my hand, which uh, is from McDonald's. To, I have to say, this morning was just not the productive morning I was planning. Um, so I went to McDonald's, right? The thinking chair, the whole bit, and it was just complete chaos there. I don't quite know why. Uh, they wait, had wait, the... you're shocked that at five in the morning. <laughs> It was a little at later. At McDonald's. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair. Fair. Okay. Give um, me a time. Six o'clock? You, yeah. Okay. okay so six yeah, was, in the morning at McDonald's while you're sitting in the thinking chair. It yeah. was chaotic. First of all, they're alternating between 70s disco and Britney Spears going back and forth. That juxtaposition was just bothersome to me. I didn't know who the audience was. And so I had to put in my own <laughs> my own earbuds. Um What's interesting is the number of parents that make McDonald's part of their morning routine, right? They're mm. trying to keep it together. They're coming in. They're grabbing breakfast for the kids. It's something I, you know, maybe at one point in my life, I never would have understood. But, you know, maybe it makes a little bit more sense now. There was this comedian a number of years ago. I don't remember who it was, but said something that I just absolutely loved. It was, it was something like, right before the birth of your first child, go to a McDonald's playland and judge every single parent in there because it is the last time you will ever be able to judge <laughs> uh, someone's parenting. So, you know, I'm watching all these parents come in, trying to scoot their kids through and all that. But it, it reminded me, you know, sort of smiling, whereas at a different point in my life, I might have gone, what are they doing? Um, now I just kind of smile. Uh, there are a lot of things that I, I think I understand a little bit better now as a as a parent i am not big on apologizing which a number of people have raised uh -huh. as a bit of a character flaw <laughs> which i understand um mm -hmm. if it bothered me enough i would apologize for it i'm kind of more of a lick your wounds just live to fight another day kind of guy is just let it go mm -hmm. but i feel completely consistent with what you're saying i owe a large number of people apologies for things that i thought <laughs> Right. And so mm -hmm. I went out years ago with colleagues who had uh, girls who were like six or eight years old, went to a Mexican restaurant mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, I don't like spicy food. I don't like squishy food. <laughs> and they eventually got a tortilla and uh -huh. a bowl of grated cheese. I was such a self-righteous ass in my head. <laughs> and I'm like, my kids are never going to do that. And teleport 10 years in the future and my daughter is eating a tortilla and pinching out grated <laughs> cheese out of a bowl and i'm like yeah i need to call him 
they don't teach you this stuff in parenting school, right? You just, you, you had parents, so you think you know what's going on. I would have never guessed for a minute that I would have to deal with a kid f- forging a school note. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would have especially never thought I would have to deal with it when the kid is in ki- kindergarten. <laughs> but, but there it is. I, I won't tell you which kid, but I think you know which one it is. It's, it's the one who just couldn't be mine genetically. You know the one I'm talking about, yeah, right? I, yeah. I do, actually. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm I mean, proud, right? Because also, <laughs> you're simultaneously thinking, okay, that's really inappropriate. But yeah. also, yeah. boy. Yeah, dang. I mean, get the system to work for you, right? <laughs> way, so, way to go. <laughs> so tell me, because I've got some of these as well, is if you uh-huh. can come up with one or two, what did they not tell you about parenting that you learned in the trenches? What what would come up on your list? Yeah. So it's more a feeling, I would say. And that is, you know, I didn't have kids until I was in my 30s. And I, I thought I had sort of figured things out by the time I had kids. And one of the things I thought I'd figured out is the span of things that I'm capable of feeling. And once I had a kid, it's 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 like someone was remodeling the inside of me. They knocked out a wall and they added a whole room because there's just all these other feelings that I just didn't know I was capable of. It was it was simultaneously new levels of frustration, new levels of love. It was like there's this whole the primal wing over there mm. that I completely tapped into. Right? It's crazy. I have a very similar feeling. We were out, my wife and I, it was a long, long time ago, but my daughters were maybe one or two. I don't remember how we got at some dinner party. They weren't close friends, but they were, you know, some group maybe in the neighborhood or something. But they proceeded with this conversation of would it ever be moralistically acceptable to take another human life? Mm-hmm. In settings like that, I actually don't talk very much. And I'm sitting there and they were invoking philosophers and Kant and Descartes. <laughs> they were circling around that there is no circumstance that would exist where you would be morally in the right of taking a human life. And I only had two thoughts in my head. One is... You're running a clinic on why people can't stand the ivory tower intelligentsia. And the other one was, I almost killed two people that day. You know? Because a guy. It was a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday. And a guy in Target bumped my stroller with his cart coming around a corner, and I almost killed him just right there in the camping aisle. I am. You know, talk about unlocking that door to your brain stem. Yeah. I was just sitting there and thinking, no, I could do this all day long if they were threatening my kid. Oh, heck yes. I, there, there are kids on the playground that I would go take out. There are, te- <laughs> there are teachers I would take out. Uh, it's just weird. It's in there, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty peaceful guy. But you touch my kid, oh, I will kill you. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's just in there. I didn't so I didn't expect that, right? I didn't 
I didn't know that was in there. I thought I was a pretty, pretty controlled yeah. kind of guy. Yep. So that was one. Another one for me is underestimating how much kids overhear what you think they're not paying attention to, and then it becomes ingrained in them, and then you're forced to take responsibility. So I don't know. My daughters, they were four or five, and we had a, another family over for dinner, and I have a big round dining room table, and so there are eight of us around, and and one of my girls, I think she was about five, and she said, excuse me, daddy? And I turned, I said, yeah, and she said, could I please be excused? And I said, well, of course, sweetie, and she said, thank you. And she shoved her chair back and said, Ugh, I gotta take a dump. <laughs> And everybody at the table just stared at me. And I'm like, why are you at looking you. at me? That's right. That's right. It's They know. They know. Well, with your permission, I'm going to transition, transition on that point. Uh, let's see. Um, so in the... I don't know if I can recover from that. But in the spirit of them, no one telling you how to be a parent... I would say no one tells you how to be what we are, academics, right? The people <laughs> the people who talk about Descartes at the at the restaurant. I kept interrupting saying, "Don't you mean Descartes?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't get invited a second time to a lot right. of these things. Yeah, that's I'm a really Swaven de Boner, so <laughs> Okay, Swaven de Boner. Anyway, um, you were talking about not being trained. I don't trained know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> well, you know, we have parents and we think, oh, you know, I've, I've seen parents now for most of my life. So I think I can be a parent. The same is true in, in academia, right? We've had, we've had professors. And then when we make the decision to become a professor, I think we think we know what goes on because we've been seeing it. It turns out we there's so much stuff that we really don't know exactly what's going on. There's no professoring school, right? Mm. Just like there's no parenting school. And I thought it would be fun. Just, just I'm, I'm stuck on, <laughs> was it Swaven de Boner? Which was, Swaven was de Boner. Swaven de Boner. Um, <laughs> I just thought it would be fun to maybe trade some thoughts about professoring that kind of uh, surprised us or things maybe mm. we wish folks had told us. Uh, do you think you can hack up some of those? I can hack up some of those. Yes, I can. So it was your idea to hit a ball into play. What, have you been a professor 25 years? You're a couple yeah. years ahead of me, I think. Yeah, this is 29, year 29. 29? <clears throat> You're an yeah. old man. I'm, <laughs> I'm in um, 23, I think. So I've just been young for a really long time, is yeah. the way I prefer to think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, yes. <laughs> one of my daughter's friends, I heard them talking, and they didn't know I was listening. I was just in the kitchen, and they were around the corner. But her friend said, my dad thinks your dad is a child with the resources of a grown-up. <laughs> That's about you, right? I, and I was like, yeah, no. Yeah, that's, that's, I got, a, that's about okay, right. Fair. To <laughs> so totally give me, fair. and uh, you got a mental list. You're staring off here as we're doing this. So what? Mm -hmm. Give me an example of something that when you you got a year or two in, mm -hmm. you thought to yourself, "Wow, I really wish somebody had given me a heads up about this." Yeah, 
so either we had a few episodes ago, you know, we do those little sponsor things at the end of the episodes and you come up with some, I come up with some, it's, it's, it's fun. And one of them I threw out there was, about, I don't remember the exact wording, but something about how that academia is a place where professors have no training in teaching and administrators have no training in <laughs> leadership or management. And somehow everybody's okay with this. That to me was just this eye-opening thing. And I suppose if you had poked at me uh, and made me think about it, I would probably have understood that. But when I got here, it's just shocking how pretty much everybody at the university is doing stuff that they had really didn't have training for. You know, some of the teaching is just abysmal. Some people care, some people don't. Some of the management leadership practices are crazy. It's just, this is the worst business model ever. Mm. People making decisions about finances who have no training in finance and budgeting. It's just, it's it's a very, very strange place. And we sort of all seem to act like, well, we're intelligent, you know, like we could, we could totally figure that out. You know, I keep thinking of, was it a Holiday Inn Express? You know, um, no, I don't know. I, I, I'm i not a brain surgeon, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I think that this, all of academia sort of thinks they can figure stuff out. I agree. The list is incredible. And, and you use the word, there are people out there who, it's like me, like mm-hmm. everything I do, I have not receive training in. And it's come up on prior episodes. I've got this kind of weirdo enjoyment of all things aviation. I I draw parallels of, imagine that United Airlines selected a pool of really bright and talented women and men to be the next generation of pilots, and then assigned them the LA to Chicago flight on a 767 and said, yeah, just give it a go. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you've you've been on planes before and, and you know, it's mostly east and a little bit you want to angle north, I suppose, but then there's the whole curvature of the globe and that kind of mm-hmm. screws things up, but you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, every person on the face of the planet would quit getting yeah. on airplanes. Well, except for those who fly spirit because that actually is their training module. Yes. Yes. But- well you pay you pay ten dollars extra to have someone who has flown before. It's a box you click. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick one of all of those things, because there are many, I mean, just starting with the most obvious is teaching. We teach undergraduates, we teach graduates, often there are postdocs in, and so we we are expected to teach at a very high level. Uh, We had a friend of the family who was becoming certified to teach third graders. She wanted to be a third grade teacher. She had to have hundreds of hours of supervised student teaching, of, you know, coursework and philosophies of teaching and theories of change and all of these things. And we pretty much just have to demonstrate that we don't have a florid personality disorder. And even that is not a a deal breaker, right? That's on the preferred list, not the required list. Uh And it was really shocking to me as we were sitting at the dining room table and having her talk about how she had had this series of undergrad classes in education and theories of learning, empirically supported methods of pedagogy and teaching, and Mm -hmm. we have none of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we even have a bit of indignation about, right, when sometimes students ask questions and we we revert to the bad parent mode. We're like, well, you should have known that, 
right? Mm. You should you should have known what all, all these phrases come out that really just mean you don't know what the heck you're doing. It's staggering, um, and and here we are. And then you get uh, you get promoted to, to be uh, an administrator because of all the training. No, no, wait. Mm-hmm. There's that great line in the book Straight Man, mm-hmm. right, by one of your favorite authors. Is it Richard Rousseau? Richard Rousseau. Anybody yeah. out there who is in academia, this is a quantitude required assignment. You have to go read Straight Man. It is a novel about academia, and I love to read, and I read a lot, and it's the only book that has made me laugh out loud while Mm -hmm. I'm reading it. And so that is your assignment over the spring, is go read Straight Man. Yeah, it's great. And one of my favorite lines in it is, I'll get close to it, it's something like, um, well, there are lots of bad teachers. We can't make them all deans. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) That's the and, exact line. Okay. Okay. Anyway, that was one thing that was kind of eye-opening when you start to realize, wow, everybody around here is just making this up. Yeah, but it goes through like all aspects of what we do, right? So mm-hmm. I was very fortunate. I was, a, I think, a second-year assistant professor, maybe a third year, and I got my first grant. I got a grant from NIDA. It was four or five years this was 20 years ago, and it was a million and change over five years, which is a, that's a, just a modest grant. I found out, you know, within six months, I was running a small business. You have a, an annual budget. You're encumbering things. I very sheepishly had to go look up the word encumber because <laughs> I didn't know what encumber meant. But you're making hires, right? You have a staff. I think one of the most common errors all of us make when we very first get our grants is we overstaff. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get five RAs. And then I actually got mad at the RAs because they had the audacity to ask me what they should be working on. And as soon as you hire staff, you've got to manage them. Again, you know, they've got these little passing degrees that you can get like MBAs in (laughs) how to run a small business. It took me years to figure out the just the core necessities. And even then, I don't think I, I did it well. I was able to survive, but not necessarily be like truly productive. Yep. And that was, you know, I was in the dean's office for a while. Same deal. I had no, I had no experience with that. It's just, it's a funny place. And I, I don't think if anybody, if someone said, hey, let's design a university, anybody who knew what they were doing would never ever design it like this. But here we are. I love, I love this place, right? I love the job and all of that. It's just, that was one of my first big eye-opening things about how much people are really just making it up as they go. Yeah, I totally agree. So what's another one? I guess we're just going to start the conversation that we have absolutely no training in all the core components of, of our job. So setting that aside, check, check that one off. Mm -hmm. Um, Trying to cast it as, you know, what what did I not expect or what what did they not tell me? You know, I'll move to a good one. Mm -hmm. I was very pleasantly surprised to appreciate the extent to which, on average, not universally, I know that, but on average, your home institution wants you to succeed. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions. I know that. There are bad people, and I know that. But that as a grad student, as a postdoc... I really got ingrained with this. They're going to suck your blood out. They're going to take everything out of you. They're going to discard you. 
as you know, I'm wholly new to Twitter, and you continue to not let me touch our... It's it's just best. It's our just Quantitude best. Pod yeah. account. But I'm a lurker now, as I, uh-huh. I, I lurk and I read. And, and I have to admit, I continue to be surprised at the negativity in some of the academic Twitter conversation lines, whatever you call them. Twits? Are they twits and retwits? Whatever they are. Uh-huh. Of the anger at senior people and institutions and administrations at blocking you from succeeding and that senior people build walls and that that senior people like try to use you and all of this and and again don't send an email and said I have this experience I know exactly that there are bad people out there there are bad institutions but I really do believe both on my personal experiences and talking with a lot of people over a lot of years that people hire you with the intent of you succeeding. Now, a lot of that is on the individual, right? I mean, almost all of that is on the individual, is you have to be productive, you have to teach, you have to be collegial. One thing I love about being here at Carolina is we hire faculty with the sole intent of tenuring them and making them a long-term member of the intellectual community. And that was a pleasant surprise for me, to realize that there are far more people who are invested in you succeeding than not. Oh my gosh, yes. Why would you go to the trouble of conducting some national search, pulling this one person in, and and then making it hard for them to succeed or not care if they're going to succeed? That, that makes zero sense. Uh, you know, you and I have both been administrators for a long time. I and and it hurts me actually when i read some of the tweets that you're talking about where people talk about the barriers that exist and and the environments that they're in it hurts me it's like what what the heck are people doing to create this kind of environment where people perceive that they have uh that they're being impeded at every turn i i view our job as much as possible um, to create an environment where those people are going to thrive. It is on them to thrive, but we can create an environment where that is maximized or we can create an environment where that's minimized. There are things we can do with assigning course preparations, things we can do with mentorship, uh, things we can do socially. There are all these things that we can do, and it, it just it, it hurts me when I see other people out there doing that. But this, and to me, it's like graduate school as well. I admit people into the graduate program that I want to see flourish. And it's nice when you walk into an environment uh, and you feel the pressure on yourself, but then you also feel the people around you actually care and they make you part of the conversation. That's a nice thing. I agree. And I can raise that as an issue because I entered the system with those negative views, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them came from going out to dinner with fellow grad students and complaining about you know, this or that is, I went into my very first faculty job with this expectation that they don't have my best interest at heart. And then there are problems with that that stem from that is one is it's just not a pleasant place to be, right? You go, you're so excited and you go for your very first job and and you feel like somehow you've got to keep your guard up at every corner is, is part of it is just, it's not as fulfilling as it could be. But part of it, and this happened to me over a couple of years, and then I was able to correct my perceptions, it gives you a cognitive frame where you begin to interpret ambiguous evidence in a particular way, Mm -hmm. right? I've got a, a good friend who thinks about personality 
as a, a, a Bayesian process. So you have your priors and then the data and then the posterior. And he argues that some people have very, very strong priors that swamp out the data mm-hmm. and have a very rigid personality. Some people have uninformative priors where they're completely influenced by the data and then some in between. And I view it as these priors where somebody would say something maybe a little out of context, a little vague, and I would interpret it in a negative light. Mm -hmm. And that didn't help me because it wasn't in a negative light, but it was going through these priors of people are out to get me. My brother told me once a story about they did a case study when he was in in business school about um, where the crazen came from. And it's a very funny story, but it's kind of how I think about this view. I don't know what the company was, but makes the the cranberry juice. and Ocean they, spray. Okay, ocean spray. Today's episode of Quantitude is brought to Brought you by <laughs> Ocean Spray. And they would squish up the cranberries, and they had all of these cranberry holes that they were just throwing away. They got an R&D group and figured out that if you soaked them in sugar water and dried them out, they were craisins. You go into a new job and you're a cranberry, right? And the institution is going to squeeze out all the juice, soak you in sugar water, dry you out, and sell you... For pennies on the ton, again, because people may be listening and saying, I had a really tough go, you know, myself, and I absolutely know, and I am very both sympathetic and empathetic to that, that there are bad people and bad institutions out there that exist, and they shouldn't, but that I would like to believe Mm -hmm. that there are far more institutions and people who work in them who, the day you walk in, want you to succeed. Absolutely. Not only do I want the people to succeed, but I, I, I want them to see their fingerprints on this place early on. You know, I want them to be a part of the decision-making process. And the way, the way I look at things now, having a, a little bit of time in academia, is that the people who are here now will be here longer in time than I will be here. Uh, and I really want them to own this place. I, and and it's an interesting thing where you start to feel the potential for your role to shift, you know, maybe pulling back a little bit and saying, well, that's not how I might do things. And I'll let people know what concerns I might have, but, but maybe letting them make decisions and letting them take ownership of mm-hmm. a place. I want everybody who works here to feel their fingerprints on things, to see their ideas reflected in what we do. Uh, and to feel really good about it, and that's that's the experience of academia I'm having, and and I, I I wish that experience on everybody. It's lovely. What else? I'll bounce the ball back to you. Well, this is this is sort of in the spirit of things that we're talking about. There's the expression: you give someone enough rope, too much rope, and they can hang themselves, or whatever that expression is. Right? I'd have to have to Google it. Um, so I can pull out the Richard Russo quote, but I don't remember this time time honored expression. Academia is a place of tremendous freedom, and it can be something that is awesome for people, and it can be something that is really unmanageable for other people. And one of the things that was really surprising in a way is the the double-edged sword that this freedom is. Um, it's like, what? You get to have a job where you make up stuff that you do? That is so awesome. 
awesome. Um, and the downside is what? You've got a job where you have to make up stuff that you're going to do? That sucks. Um, that sucks. <laughs> yes, yes. And I have seen people who are really good at managing this freedom, and I have seen people who are really bad at managing this freedom. And And one of the things that really I'm mindful of as a mentor of graduate students, graduate students who want to go into academic positions, you know, as they're getting later on in their in their training here, I I try to mentor them a lot less. I try to let them make a lot more decisions and start to figure out things on their own because I don't want to be this helicopter parent who sends someone out into the world and they can't function because there's no one around them making decisions for themselves. The you know the I guess the observation at the end of the day was what a double edged sword freedom is. uh, In short, I couldn't agree more. And it's funny you said you know you've known people who have done well, you've known people who have not done well under that, and then you and I have both known people who have simultaneously done well and not well because it Mm -hmm. it you know you can let certain things get away from you and certain things not. Something I struggled with myself when I began. I'm not entirely sure that I've overcome it even after all of this time, which is in all aspects of your job, not in some, in all aspects of your job, there's a point where you have to say, this is good enough. Mm -hmm. Everything can be improved upon. And so you're prepping a lecture and you have slides or you have notes or you have an example, whatever you're going to do. It can always be improved upon with a couple more hours of work. And you've got to say, all right, this could be better, but I've got to stop now because I have to turn to something else. With a a paper, how many times have you read a air quote final draft that you're Mm going to submit (laughs) and then say, you know, I could kind of massage this. All boundaries are infinite. You could spend an infinite amount of time on all aspects of your job. And you really have to feel comfortable in saying, this is not as good as it could be, but it's good enough. Yeah. I'm just dying on the inside here because if you go through my folders, I'm a reasonably organized person. I actually think you're more organized than I am. In many aspects of my life, I'm a reasonably organized person. If you go through the manuscripts, you'll see, you know, title, 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 dot final. And then title, 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 dot final, final. And title, title, and I have I've got these papers with like the final six times, and then to the point where I have to call it like final six, final eight, final twelve. Uh, and- <laughs> you know why I'm laughing is there's a book, and I think, and I'm sitting here, and I don't have this, and I might be wrong, but I think it's by Scott Long on workflow. He's got a really nice book on workflow, and he has an entire section in there of never name a file final (laughs) and he has examples in there that are Uh like final 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 and then one is final final really really yeah (laughs) i mean it this time yeah (laughs) uh dan bauer and i did a paper oh it's a number of years ago now 10 years ago now that went to mbr and we had written the whole thing and we had a front-to-back draft And I read it and we were about to submit it. And I went down to his office and I said, you know, I think we could flip the story on its side and tell it this way. And Dan was like, no, I can see that. And so I said, let me make a pass. And so we did it. 
We submitted it. We got a kind of nice R and R on it, but the editor said, "You know, you really could tell the story in this in this <laughs> other way." And it was great because Dan emailed me and said, "I just pulled up the prior draft, and we can just resubmit." I mean, I think done. it was the fastest R and R I have ever Six. done. It was took like eight <laughs> minutes. <laughs> But it is really true that you have to be intrinsically comfortable that something is good enough. Mm -hmm. And what I struggle with, and this helped me in the teaching, is if I put an additional four hours into course prep, I am going to be able to tell the difference. Nobody in the room is going to be able to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started balancing it's good enough for me, you know, it goes way back into the 70s research of just noticeable differences in, you know, psychophysiology and things. And it was the JND. Is it a just noticeable difference? And you got to ask yourself, if I put in this extra three hours, is there a JND? And if there's not, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Because you got like eight other things you have to be doing, all of which also have a JND. Can I piggyback on that one? Go for it. Part of the problem with this is not just our own crazy personalities, but, you know, one of the things, again, in the spirit of stuff I learned when I'm here, is that you are always learning things. And of course, I knew that intellectually, but I'll give you an example and then I'll bring it back home. When I was a kid, I had colored a picture and it was a giraffe and it was on the refrigerator with a magnet and it was the best. I mean... Clearly, if you held it up to a giraffe, you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference between, you know, the giraffe I drew. And, and I mean, I, I picked just the right crayon out of the box of eight crayons in every, in every case. The, the problem is, it was only, you know, a couple of years later when I'd walk by the, the giraffe on the refrigerator and go, wow, that's a crappy giraffe I, I drew. You know, and the thing is, everything we do in academia is, is a giraffe. Right, your dissertation was is a crayon giraffe. The first papers that you wrote are a crayon giraffe. The manuscript you just submitted is a crayon giraffe because you you're, you're always learning, you're always thinking, you're always processing. You're you're a different person this year than you were last year. You're you're constantly learning, and the and it's what it's what makes me choose this particular environment. But it's also the thing that makes me cringe at the thought of someone reading my dissertation, or cringe at the thought of maybe some of the lectures I've given over time. Mm. So the you know you have to find I agree the just noticeable difference and that's sometimes at odds with being in an environment where we are always working to learn new things always working to look at things uh, a little bit differently and it's really a fun thing to see yourself realize that the best work you ever did is now some of the worst work you've ever done right yeah, exactly I have psych methods papers that I look back on and just kind of cringe. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong, at least to my knowledge, mm-hmm. maybe there is, but that, you know, I read an argument I made or kind of position it in a literature in a way I did and just, you want it back, right? You want a mulligan, you want to do it over. Mm-hmm. But you're right, is in thinking about these things of what don't they tell you about being a professor is almost all of them are a double-edged sword. I've scribbled out on a yellow sticky and I was organizing them into like the good and the bad. And then of course it had to be the ugly because you've, (laughs) you've got to have, you've got to have the man with no name. 
it's interesting how many appeared on two or all three is you right. can say one of the biggest frustrations is you have to say good is good enough and that you're going to regret five years later some aspect of that. But then one of the great things is five years later, you're going to regret some aspect of that because you're better at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I really do feel like I'm a better scientist now than I used to be. And I hope that in five years that I'm a better scientist than I am now. My dad was a historian. He, he was a high school teacher who taught history. And one of his big points is be careful how you judge history because your current is going to be history who people are going to judge. I think that's part of the job too, is you feel like, ah, I'm at the peak of my game now, but in 10 years, we're going to be looking back and doing the same thing that we're doing now looking at the prior 10 years. There's nothing profound there. It's just, it's a simultaneous frustration and really unique element of the job that I love. It's a constantly evolving process. Yeah, but you know that now. That So you know that something you do now, you may look at differently later. You have that wisdom now to know that everything we do has a time stamp on it. It is who we were at that moment in time. And there's a certain amount of comfort that you take in knowing more. And, and I know that I'm going to understand things better in a few years than I understand them now, even though I think, wow, I understand things so much better now than I did last year. So it's, it's a really cool thing to be in that kind of environment. You know, when you and I talk about this, I, it sounds an awful lot like we're blaming our problems on our parents. You know, we should have been told this, we should have been told that. And of course, part of that is true because the deflection of responsibility is the cornerstone of a healthy psyche. But I don't really mean it that way. I guess it's more what I wish I had appreciated. If you'll forgive the gendered term, although I can use it for myself, you don't get attaboys anymore. And this happens when you enter the system, but it goes away pretty rapidly as you advance and become more senior, is you work really hard and you do something that you're proud of. I've had a lifetime of cats, and the cat brings a dead bird to you and drops it at your feet and purrs and purrs and purrs. I'll go into a faculty meeting and drop a dead bird at the chair's (laughs) feet, and nobody pets me. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm like, you don't get an attaboy. I think it's a natural part of the institution, a natural part of the system. But I struggle with that sometimes because you and I are kind of in the peak of our career right now. Like if we're going to do something important, we better get to work on doing that, right? (laughs) I still need somebody to say, hey, thanks for doing that. That was a good job. Mm-hmm. It makes me think back to the movie that you turned me on to, Whiplash. There's another recommendation. If you don't mind dark, emotionally tortured stories, it's it's a really remarkable movie called Whiplash. My favorite movie of all time. Yep. If you want to get to know Greg a little bit better, go watch mm-hmm. it if that's his favorite movie of all time. There's a line in there. And again, I'm going to paraphrase, but at some point this teacher says there are no... Uh, more harmful words in the English language than good job. I tell you, man, and every Starbucks jazz album just proves my point, really. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. And that's like the cornerstone of the movie. And in many, many ways, I agree with that. But I still want somebody to say good job. I miss that. I I miss just people saying, hey, thanks for doing that. That was a nice, 
Nice job on that. Yeah, we had a faculty retreat last week, and we were talking about professional development. And, uh, you know, I was talking about it with some of the, the newer faculty, and they said, so what do we have as professional development for more senior faculty? And the answer is nothing, <laughs> right? The, the assumption is that we don't need anything. We're fully formed. We got this. But it would be nice every once in a while to have someone say, that was awesome what you did. I love that. And it's, it's too infrequent. And it's up to us actually to change that for the cultures that we're responsible for. Well, and it's interesting you could argue that you hit a point in your life where you don't need that anymore, right? So maybe it's me individually, maybe it's it's broader. But what I try to then think about is making sure that you pay it forward with other people. And so it's easy to have a grad student come with a program they worked on late into the night and to say, okay, so we've got this part working, but we still need to figure out this loop here. When do you think you can have that done? Mm -hmm. And so I'm as guilty of it as anybody is just reminding myself to say, hey, this is really nice work. Good job. I know you stayed up late. And I really appreciate that. What we need to think about is where to go next. That's what I want to hear. And so I, I make an effort when I can. And I know I don't know. I'm not always successful. Well, I really appreciate you, Patrick. I just want you to know that. <sighs> I got a little app, the sarcasmometer. <laughs> did it just <laughs> turn just a ping little, up it just into the red? a little bit. No, I actually do appreciate you. I do. But whatever. I um, appreciate your appreciation. Oh, thank you. That which brings me, by the way, to something else on my list. May I? Hit me, baby. I, I have, ooh, Britney Spears. Hit me, baby, one more time. I like <laughs> your you tie back. Did you get that in the McDonald's thinking chair? I, I, I did. That's, an, I mean, really one of the foremost American poet laureates that we have currently. Um, very nice of you to cite Britney Spears. So the thing that I'll mention, and we'll see what you think about this, is... I had no idea how much things that I would say <laughs> actually matter, actually matter to people. And this is something that it's very hard to appreciate until you're in it. But in my head, I'm just Greg. In my head, I'm just me. And I say stuff. And historically, you know, growing up, I might say stuff that's a little flip, a little cheeky, a little, you know, smart alecky, whatever. Um, in 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 the university, I don't. I, I don't do that that much unless I have a pretty special relationship with somebody because I'm I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit sensitive to those kinds of things. But you might say something to someone like what you just said. You know, we're 80% of the way there, but there's 20% that we haven't done. And to you, it might just be this fair reckoning of what's going on. But to the student... 15 years later, they'll say, well, I remember when, I remember when you told me I was not 20% of the way there or something. And people have a, a way of just internalizing things that you say in a way that you cannot imagine. You cannot be prepared for. I have said things that I've been told later that inspired them to do something. And I have said things that I have learned that have led people to not be in school any longer. I've even said things that uh, I was told that have made people return to a home country. And when I find out what these words are, to me, I these are not big things. These are small things like, this is an area that I think we really need to work on. But someone internalizes that as, you, as them disappointing you or that they can't continue on or something like that. It's, a, it's just... There's so much power in so few words that you have. It's something that I, 
I want to be sensitive to, but it still it still is really just overwhelming to me sometimes. I couldn't agree more, and I've had many years of experience with that, both in positive ways, but also in unanticipated negative ways. You say things that you don't realize have an impact, and I don't think this is what you're saying, but just reiterating is I don't think that it's a callous kind of thing. You honestly don't realize the position that you're in, and quite honestly, the power that you have in a faculty position as an advisor, that your words matter. I have multiple examples, a couple that come to mind, and both happened where I found out later that I caused these graduate students great angst Mm -hmm. when I had no intention. I was reading some kind of uh, master's draft, and I wrote in the margin, I, I wrote a line down the paragraph, and in the margin I said, I'm not appreciating this argument. And I just went on. And what I meant was I'm not understanding it. I'm not appreciating what you're trying to convey here. And I meant the comment to be, you know, maybe try to focus this a little bit more, make it a little more explicit. Well, the student thought that I was personally insulted, that Mm. like, I don't appreciate you saying this to me. And had a weekend of angst where finally one of her fellow students said, I don't think he would convey that in that way. And so she came and we talked in and everything was cool, Mm -hmm. but it was a a misunderstanding. Another example I had is you and I both get a lot of emails that are uh, looking for postdocs or looking for, you know, their job announcements. And I always have in the back of my mind of which of our graduate students are on the job market And one came across and there was a young woman who was on the job market. And really without thinking, I hit control F for forward. And I said, FYI, dot, 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 PJC. And just fired it. And it's just like, this came across my desk. Well, she was looking for a faculty position, but this was a postdoc ad. Mm -hmm. And she had all of these questions of, was I questioning her ability to get a faculty job. Did I think that she should be looking for postdocs? She wasn't ready for a faculty and all of this. And actually one of her friends came in and said, hey man, you may or may not be aware of this. And then I went and sought her out and and I was like, no, no, no. Like I didn't even read past the subject line on it. But just a couple of quick anecdotes of you're exactly right. A few words can have a profound impact, both positively and negatively. I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, but I think that might be the healthiest response of all um, because it means that I'm I'm aware uh, as much as I can be of what comes out of my mouth. Uh, but I'll still be surprised when someone will tell me, I'll never forget what you said 15 years ago when mm. you said the following. Do you remember that? You know, and the answer is always no. <laughs> I had this happen once where somebody came up at a conference and you told me this and it was so inspiring and all of this. And my only thought in my head was, have we met? <laughs> I'm dead serious. I was like, I don't know who you and are, you are. <laughs> where we met, what I said, but I'm really glad that I influenced your life in this way. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm looking at the clock. We still uh-huh. got a few minutes, but I'm trying to think. Are you looking to pick yeah, a favorite I'm looking, from among your list? There's some that are better than 
others uh-huh. and about a third of them I actually can't read in my scribble and so I'm uh-huh. gonna you know kind of skip over those maybe at least from mine if I do a last one of ending on a positive point which I think yeah. all of these are positive a lot of these are just keep your heads up or they're double-edged swords yeah. one is I never cease to be amazed at the extent to which in academia that you can volitionally reinvent yourself mm-hmm. I really love that you can immerse yourself in teaching and just be as good a teacher as you possibly can. And that's really, really fun for a while. And then maybe you start to think, okay, well, you know, now I'm going to turn to research and you're going to write five papers a year and collaborate and be collegial and all of that. And then you can say, okay, so I've done that. Now I can move into administration. As we've established, we are woefully underprepared for that. Mm-hmm. But you can turn and, and really commit yourself to the health and well-being of the intellectual community in which you reside. And then, you know, it's like, okay, I've, I've done that. Uh, you know, maybe it's time to write a book. I think we're blessed to be in a job where one arc of that is you do all of that little bits at a time. And a lot of us aspire to do that. But that you really can fundamentally change aspects of the job that we're in when you want to turn to something new. I hadn't thought about this before, but I think this silly podcast is an example of that. A year ago, you and I were talking and saying, is there a way that we can make a contribution that's different than what we've done up to now? I can't speak for you, but this has become Mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts of my day where nine months ago, I didn't even think that this is something that I would be interested in. Attaboy. Sorry. Okay, for what? It. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you can't I, just give and, those unconditionally. Oh, I'm not, I, well, I'm sorry. I'm. They're new to me. Add a boy for what? Attab- <laughs> there is no dead bird at your feet. Dang it! Dang God, it! God, Hancock. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm. I'm. I'm a work in progress. I love the podcast. I love working with you on this, and it is a nice way to sort of reinvent or or add a translational component to what we do. It, it's just. It's great. It's it is a highlight of my of my day for sure. Okay, so can I may I throw one at you, or do you want to have the last word? I know how important that is to you. No, it isn't. <laughs> Here's one that ties back to other things that we've had, and 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 across the episodes, and and even within this episode, people will understand this as a theme of mine. One of the things that was so eye opening to me was how much I I actually didn't understand. And, you know, that goes hand in hand with being in a position where you're always learning. But what I mean is I came out of grad school and I had courses and some courses I've taken, I took multiple times, as I mentioned previously, but I go into my own classroom and I have to explain these things. And I am trained to say the words because I have heard these words in my own classes, but I'll be damned if I'm not entirely sure what they actually mean. And you spend... A lot of time, uh, I would say, you know, like your first three to five years, realizing that the words that come out of your mouth, they're not lies. They're actually true, but you start to understand why they're true, why they make sense, and maybe cross your fingers that someone doesn't scratch the surface at all because you you don't under. I mean, in fact, I welcome this the surface scratching because I like to use it as an opportunity to learn, but. It is really amazing to come out of school. They're not only calling you doctor, they're calling you professor. And even if you go into an introductory class, you realize, oh my gosh, I don't, 
I don't actually know why that is. I don't know. I, I know that we do that, but I'm not sure why that. And that is that is a wonderfully eye-opening thing to realize how, how little you actually understand. Mm. And I, I like that about what we do, actually. It's really fun you raised that. It wasn't on my yellow sticky, but it's one that I've given a lot of thought to over the years is I have three levels of understanding. And the first is I just don't understand it. The second is I understand it well enough to teach it. Mm-hmm. And the third is I actually <laughs> understand it. And I'm not being facetious. Yeah, I, I've taught a number of classes in multi-level modeling. And I have a section on the disaggregation of between group and within group effects. And that'd be a fun topic for a future episode of kind of these levels of effects and what the inferences are. But I had an hour lecture on group mean centering and deviating and all of these and Roudenbush's work on that and full lecture. I was driving to work, had NPR on, and they gave this kind of side story. It was one of these lighter hearted ones, but talking about the relation between body mass and life expectancy. And they talked about how on average, bigger species tend to outlive smaller species. So a cow outlives a duck and so on. But within a species, larger variants of that species live less long than mm-hmm. smaller variants. So big cows live less long than small cows. I'm sitting at a stoplight, one of just three between my home and the University <laughs> of North Carolina campus. And I had this light bulb go off and I was like, oh my God, that's between and within. And so I too have, I have this trichotomy (laughs) and the embarrassing thing is I had taught that lecture for about 10 years Mm -hmm. before I really had that. I get like, I truly get it. That's a beautiful thing. I think about what we do. That's a great example. I love that. All right. So is it okay if I summarize and, and pull it all together? Yeah, pull it all together because I've got. Could I add one more that tries to, that ties back? It hit, goes back hit to me the baby one more time. The parenting. Okay, I'm going to edit that out. the <laughs> The parenting thing. You know, maybe I will add one final one, and maybe you're right. I do want the last word, but it was one that occurred to me as as you were talking. And I'll keep it very brief. But that you know, sometimes what we teach and value is not valued by others. An approach, a a way of reviewing an article, a way of approaching a research. And this is a silly tie back to the front. But going back to the parenting things is uh, my girls, they're twins. They were in pre-K, so they were four years old. And we had our first call in for a parent-teacher meeting. And I thought, wow, that didn't, that was pretty good even for us. You know, 48 (laughs) months to our first parent-teacher meeting. We sat in the office and the teacher with much gravity, this was a very serious conversation, is she said, all right, well, we had a police officer visit class today to talk about good touch, bad touch. And we were sitting in the conversation circle and the police officer said, so what is the very first thing you should do if a stranger touches you? And my daughter raised her hand and he said yes and she made a fist and shook it and she said you punch him in the penis (laughs) and there was this dramatic pause from the teacher in telling the story and i was like 
Yeah, no, I mean that's that's what I taught her. You, you, yeah, at, why are we? And so, what's the problem? And we proceeded to have a conversation about that. But it's just it's a silly time back. What the teacher saw as this this grave uh-huh. thing that we needed to talk about is uh-huh. what I had actually taught my girls, and so. That's my tie back to parenting. So now why don't you show us the exit door? <laughs> Sorry, you you had me at punch him in the penis. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Uh, so this episode, not an advice episode per se. It was more of an experience and things that we came to realize once we were in this once we were in this place. It was not it was not a full on tilt our head back and offer the academic Pez dispenser that we that we <laughs> Okay, for those of you listening, you obviously can't see it, but Greg leaned his head back and gave a Pez kind of look, which is a little troubling to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, And maybe at some point we will offer, you know, some, some very specific advice for those people who are thinking about going into academia or who are new to academia. So this isn't about recommendations per se, but just some, some fun observations, and I really appreciate it. So for me, the take-home message is that Maybe go go apologize to your parents, apologize to your professors, your administrators, um, anybody that you understand, uh, understand a little bit better uh, having been in their shoes. Despite my dislike of apologizing, I at least have given mental apologies to a whole lot of people over a whole lot of years, not for things I've done, but for thoughts that I've had. Mm-hmm. So I had the most amazing advisor in the whole world, Lori Chasson, and and just a remarkable advisor, a remarkable human being. And I completely ignored her advice that when I went to my first faculty job, she said, don't talk in faculty meetings for two years. (laughs) I was like eight minutes into my first meeting And I started holding forth about how life should be. And looking back 20 years later, I want to reconvene those faculty meetings and just give the most sincere (laughs) apology for the stupidest stuff that I said and the most ridiculous beliefs that I had about how things should be. So, Mm -hmm. Lori, here, I will give one official apology. I apologize for not following your advice. I will next time. Very nice. Um, and speaking of next time, uh, we look forward to t- having people join us next time. One reminder, though, what do we want to remind people of, Patrick? We have a limerick contest coming <sighs> up, and we've had some submissions. We would like more submissions. Yes. So whatever submission method you choose, whether it's through our web portal or the phone thing or email, whatever, get them to us. Time is running out. It's going to be It's going to be epic. We need them by March 3rd, please. The webpage is quantitudethepodcast.org, and there's a phone number there, and there's a a window that you can submit an email. And we also have a dedicated email address, limerick at quantitudethepodcast.org. You can send a text-based message, or uh, as we would encourage is a voice memo if you want to. And remember, we're particularly looking for pirate Irish, (laughs) Irish pirate whatever that may be. And on March 17th, we are going to have a Limerick-themed reading of Limericks with a special guest star who uh, we will not tell you yet. 
But okay. thank you, everybody. We hope that you have tolerated us in this has been at least of some interest. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and please leave a review. And be sure to follow us on Twitter. We can be found at QuantitudePod. And visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. This has been Quantitude, the podcast equivalent to the Iowa caucuses. Today's episode is brought to you by the Wisconsin Lawn Bowling Association, who needed a break from all the excitement. By model-based computational cognitive network plasticity neuroscience, who says random word generators only create gibberish. And by 5TRAN, clinically proven to be 25% more effective than 4TRAN. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.